Dyke van der Meer, and welcome to Flatlanders, our weekly program in which we profile the work and ideas of people in and from the Netherlands who are making a significant contribution to our society. My guest today is Gary Schwartz. I was in Mexico, in Baja, California, about uh, 10 years ago. My sister had a house there. And a friend of hers came over from the mainland. He took a boat from the port. And he said, you know, in the uh, harbor there, I ran into a Dutch artist. And uh, knowing you, I said to him, have you ever heard of Gary Schwartz? And this Dutch artist, very downcast, said, He's better known than any artist in the Netherlands. <laughs> Gary Schwartz is not an artist. He's a renowned American-born Dutch writer, publisher, lecturer, and columnist on art, and a leading expert on the painter Rembrandt. He adopted the Netherlands as his home more than 40 years ago. I recently spoke with Gary at his beautiful 17th century house on a canal in the picturesque town of Marsen, near Utrecht. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, which I still think is one of the great places to have been born, and in 1940. So my early years in the late 40s and early 50s were spent in a city that considered itself the capital bar none of the world, and uh, that's the way I grew up feeling about where I was living. Like any kid growing up in Brooklyn, Gary went to museums with his parents and liked seeing the dinosaurs more than the paintings. It wasn't until he went to college in New York that he discovered art history. It was a kind of piece of freshman daring. And I thought, let me take something that the other kids aren't taking. And there was this fine arts as an elective. Uh, and that turned out to be such a fascinating course, intellectually especially, the teaching of H.W. Janssen, the Janssen of the textbooks, who was chairman of the department at NYU, where I went, really inspired me. I thought, this is fascinating. And so later on, I came back to art history as a major, and I've never looked back. Back in 1964, after a summer in Italy doing graduate work on medieval art, Gary made a side trip to the Netherlands. He fell in love with the country, with Dutch painting, and with his Dutch wife, Luki. I stepped off the plane, I came into Amsterdam, and I just felt like I was and I went into a trance. It was so beautiful. There was something so dignified and beautiful about it, not just the, the buildings, but the way people moved around. And I felt that I wanted to be part of it. So when I got home, I changed my thesis subject and dreamt up a Dutch subject so that I could ask for a study grant in the Netherlands. You, you said you fell in love with the country, but uh, how did you end up staying here so long? I suppose it was in the back of my mind. I was shopping around for a country, to tell you the truth. I was unhappy with America in the mid-1960s. The war in Vietnam was, was heating up. There was tremendous dissension among uh, the American people, even among the students at the university that I was staying in. I felt... Um, 
ill at ease with most Americans. I, I couldn't talk to the people from my own country about values that I was brought up to respect and that I thought were, were being trampled on. So when I came to the Netherlands, I saw a country that was much more at peace with itself, where the values I'm talking about that I learned in, in civics class as a, as a kid in, in New York were being respected to a much greater degree than, than my own country. And that was a big reason for me to want to stay here. You've been in the Netherlands for more than 40 years. Are you a Dutch citizen? I became a Dutch citizen in 1974, so it's already quite a long time. I applied for Dutch citizenship on January 20th, 1973, on the day of Richard Nixon's inauguration for the second time as President of the United States. And out of those values that I told you about of uh, respect for the other, of fair play, of behaving uh, graciously in greatness, which is the way I saw America behaving in the 1940s, or thought it was even in the 50s, uh, I drew the line there and thought I was paying America the greatest compliment I could by applying for Dutch citizenship. And the Queen saw it the same way, so she granted me my Dutch citizenship. Gary Schwartz has gone on to publish and write about Dutch painting, and he has played a pivotal role in the international museum world through an organization he set up in 1998, CodeArt. This is an idea that I had 10 years ago, broached it to the Dutch government and found them very enthusiastic about it. So they were willing to fund it, they were willing to appoint me director of this organization, and I remain that for eight years, the last two years. I've been semi-retired, and now I'm webmaster of www.codart.nl. It is the uh, portal on internet to information about museums with collections of Dutch art and Flemish art, and also a calendar of uh, events, exhibitions, symposiums, and so forth taking place all over the world in the field of Dutch and Flemish art. And it brings all these curators and these specialists on Dutch painting together, doesn't it, for exhibitions, conferences? That was my idea, and it worked out. We launched it in January 1998. And, well, now CodeArt has 390 members from 35 countries. Mm. All of these people, we didn't know, but they spend their days in cities all over the world working at the expense of their own governments, their own museums on Dutch culture, Dutch art. Uh, and this is a fabulous resource for the Netherlands, which the Dutch government was wise enough to realize was a golden idea when I brought it to them. In the 40 years that Gary Schwartz has been writing and publishing on Dutch painting, the field of art history has undergone enormous changes. The profession has been enriched by know-how from many other fields like statistics and economics, and by new scientific technologies that enable art historians to authenticate and date artworks more accurately. The basic questions are still the ones broached by the art historians of the, of the older generation. 
But you're absolutely right that uh, science has become vital to the study of the art object, and that's something that really only took off in the time that I've been in the Netherlands. And it was a Dutchman, actually, who took one of the greatest steps in those developments, uh, Dolf van Aspere de Boer, from the University of Groningen. Well, before that, he was at the Central Laboratory for the Study of Works of Art and Science in Amsterdam. He developed a technique, which was a an application of American military technology, of looking under the surface of panel paintings. With infrared light, you can capture images that are below the painted surface of uh, paintings on very flat supports. So this works very well for paintings on wooden panels. And you get an image of the underdrawing. This doubled, in fact, the number of art objects to study in the 15th and 16th century of Dutch art and Flemish art when most of the paintings were on those flat wooden panels. So he worked for decades refining his technique and refining the means of analyzing those images and uh, really uh, revamped the entire field. Techniques like dendrochronology enable historians to date a painting on a wood panel by counting the tree rings in order to pinpoint the year in which the tree for the panel was felled. This technique has been essential for the Rembrandt Research Project, for example, one of the most ambitious projects ever set up to authenticate the work of one artist. Gary Schwartz has been a critical observer of this project and has actively participated in the discussion about what constitutes a genuine Rembrandt. The question of economic history, I'm happy to say I was one of the initiators of one working on a, a book on Peter Sonderdam, one of my favorite artists on whom I wrote a monograph together with the economic historian Martin Jan Bock. For the first time, we applied uh, techniques of economic history to reconstructing the uh, career and environment of an artist in that we were following the lead of uh, a marvelous American economist, Michael Montias, who I published also when I was uh, in, in publishing. He used his background as an economist to take a fresh look at what was making Dutch artists tick in terms of making a living. The insights that he derived just from asking the kinds of simple questions that a, a simple economist would ask really were an enormous stimulus to us to investigate new directions in the study of Dutch art. And uh, you yourself, in your first book on Rembrandt, which was published about 20 years ago, you um, came up with some very interesting facts that no one had looked at before, and, and just almost statistic facts showing how many people Rembrandt knew within even just a short, a few short blocks from where he lived, and what this illustrates about the kind of connections he had and who his patrons were and the subjects of his paintings. Right. The Rembrandt that we find out about in school and in museums is a Rembrandt that is the property of the world. He's uh, one of the 
artists with the greatest reputations, with the greatest reach. And it took some doing for me also in my own mind to kind of reverse that image and bring him back to the individual human being and maker of a career living in a house in a neighborhood with uh, certain opportunities open to him, others less open to him, and realizing that his world was so much smaller when he was living in it than it has uh, become for us. I found this immensely exciting and revealing. It's not only it, it limited him in certain ways, but it also expanded in other ways the view that you could develop on his interactions with society, the people of various religions, various social classes, the various uh, cities and uh, groupings and politics and uh, the power holders uh, that uh, he was dependent on that he interacted with. You speak of Rembrandt as as the wealth of the world, actually. Rembrandt belongs to the world community. But not everyone in the world knows about Rembrandt. Isn't it really just the Western world? I'm afraid it is. I just came back from Iran, where I gave lectures on Rembrandt. Uh, and to do a little field research, I asked people in the street, educated people who spoke English and who were aware of their own culture, if they ever heard of Rembrandt. And only an older man, my own old age, in his 60s, uh, had heard of him, but wasn't really sure who he was, except that he was a famous artist. In Malaysia, in Indonesia, in China, in uh, all of, of, of South America, you have you know, a population that have never heard of him. And this is something that we have to get used to. We either have to sell our own knowledge and respect for the art of the past, or else enlarge our own frame of thinking about art so that Rembrandt becomes one of the many artists who worked at that time, including all of these many artists that we never heard of who were working in great societies and cultural areas like China and Korea, for example, where it also has a much older and, and probably richer art history than the Netherlands. We are really very Eurocentric and America-centric in our view of things, I'm afraid. You're listening to Flatlanders, a program of profiles from Radio Netherlands worldwide. Our guest today is art historian and Rembrandt expert, Gary Schwartz. Rembrandt provides of all of the individuals in Western culture probably the most complete and most accessible portal entry into the world of values in Christian Europe of the early modern era and anyone else. The great themes of the Bible, of humanity, uh, landscape, everyday life, he drew pictures of and painted pictures of that you can gain immediate access to just by taking the trouble and it's a joy, of, of course, to look at and to admire. You don't even have to do deep study of it. Just let yourself be beguiled by them enough to ask certain questions, and you will be brought in to the world of uh, Europe in, uh, in a broad level and the most enjoyable possible level. 
And yet uh, we tend to speak of him and of the Dutch art of the 17th century in very national terms. This is our national treasure. Well, I've been arguing with the Dutch uh, about this, not only about Rembrandt, but about the entire school of uh, Dutch and Flemish artists. I consider them for the 17th, 16th centuries part of the European art scene. It was a very international scene. Uh, Rembrandt, for example, his etchings were being collected and traded all over Europe during his lifetime, even uh, before he was, he was uh, 35 years old. There, were, there was lively uh, trade and interest in his etchings and in his paintings. Self-portraits by him were hanging in the collections of the King of England, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, the Emperor of the Habsburg, the Holy Roman Empire, the King of France, uh, and they hung him in comparison and in the company of self-portraits of artists from all over Europe. In his time, he was still part of an international scene based on international competition on world standards. And that's what was part of what made him what he was and brought him the kind of, uh, of great fame that he achieved. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of these wonderful works here in this country in, in many dozens of museums, and yet people aren't going to museums. Educated people aren't going to museums, let alone our Muslim minorities and young kids who are out doing computer games instead. All I can say is that I do what I can to stimulate interest in museums through uh, the website, through lectures, through my own enthusiasm. Uh, but it's true what you say, that there has been a steady decline, I think, in the number of visits by individual Dutch people to museums. It's now about once in a lifetime. It is a small minority. A small minority, um, an elite that shouldn't be supported by taxpayers' money? Or do you think the politicians are right in putting pressure on museums to commercialize or prove their worth? Uh, I don't agree with that. It, it's it's a small group, but it's a larger group, for example, than the ones who go to sports events. And those are never considered elite. That's considered something that belongs to all the people, and the government supports that in various ways. I don't think it's... Uh, a healthy idea to uh, commercialize the uh, museum world, to put them at the mercy or the, throw them into the arms of, uh, of business as sponsors, because uh, the function of a museum in the world and in the country serves larger values than just the aesthetic delectation of the people who go to the museum. They stand for something, even if they are not being visited. Even the people who don't go to the Rijksmuseum are proud that it's there and think of it as something that projects an image of the Netherlands that they think is important. There must be many big unanswered questions for you. What is something you're still very curious about and would like to know more about? Well, about Rembrandt, let me think for a minute. Of course, there are, there are all kinds of detailed questions. If I could get to spend uh, 24 hours uh, with Rembrandt, I, I would have tons of, of little questions to uh, ask him. I suppose one of the biggest questions is 
the issue that I raise now in my my recent book, and that is what was he what was he thinking of in creating so many self portraits? The self portraits have been discussed in older literature as a kind of psychological autobiography. It's almost irresistible to think of them in that way. They were made before the mirror. The man was looking at his own features and reporting on them in a certain way. But I have developed a theory that he wasn't doing this in terms of introspection, but exactly in terms of establishing rapport between himself and others. Uh, making images of himself that he related to images of others, portraits, but also figures in uh, biblical scenes, history paintings, and so forth. And this is something which uh, he would have been consciously aware of and which he could answer that question. And I think it's a, a very big question. And you continue to work on uh, different articles. What is the next book, for example, going to be about? What is it? What are you working on now, or is this what you're working on? Rembrandt keeps me indeed very busy. Cordart keeps me very busy, but I have a new idea for a book that I am very, very excited about. That is not art history, and it has to do with uh, the role of dynasties in the 20th century. How did you get interested in that? It was just something that occurred to me. And uh, I don't want to tell too much about it right now, but it was one of these eureka moments when I realized uh, something that I thought was important and that was being overlooked. And so I'm uh, working on a, on a proposal now to try to get this di my dynasties project into place. It goes much further than the usual names that you think of in the first place. And these are regimes or dynasties, families that played a particular role in the 20th century even after they uh, disappeared from the political stage. So this is something that I'm going to try to put together for uh, the coming decade. I am interested in networks. I consider, uh, and this is this is the book that I should do after my dynasties book, and this is an, another of my great insights into the nature of humanity and culture. What really, what culture, what history, what society is really about is conversation. Everything we do beyond the point of nourishment and our 15 or 1800 calories a day is simply interesting each other in things to talk about. And uh, the beginning of shared values is chatter. So I think that uh, a talk and even you know our, our, our talk right now uh, is something that people that devote themselves to, devote time, energy, money, calories to. Uh, and this is something to work out in a future book project. Well, it's always very enjoyable speaking with you, so I'm not finished yet. <laughs> I would like to ask you, when you look back on your career, do you see yourself now as Dutch or American or what? You, your children, your wife is Dutch, your children are Dutch or American? I was born in New York. I was raised in Brooklyn and in Queens. I went to school in Manhattan and in Baltimore. Sometimes. So the first 25 years of my life can't be taken away from me. Of course I'm American. But I have indeed become a, uh, a nearly complete Dutchman. I have 
Dutch citizenship, I speak the language, I live among Dutch people. I've been married to a Dutch woman now for almost 40 years. Our children were born in the bed upstairs of, from this room where we're sitting in the house where we still live. Even uh, that aspect of my life here is an ongoing surprise to me. The idea that being born where I was in the very mobile society, people were moving all the time. My parents kept moving. I've been living in the same house now since 1968. Next year is going to be 40 years. This is an aspect of rootedness in the Netherlands, which is my life here. So, yeah, I can say I am a Dutchman. And what our listeners can't see is that this is an exquisite house. It's beautiful, and uh, it's quite an old house, isn't it? And, and this town, Marsen, is also a picture book. Yeah, it really is. Marsen is a miracle. Every time I step out the front door onto the Fecht River, which is a legend in Dutch country living, and look up and down at the houses from the 17th and 18th century around me and think that this place uh, has been... Uh, peacefully inhabited for about a thousand years now, I get a very warm feeling about uh, where I am and where I live. The house is, uh, for, was rebuilt in 1725. The interior is the way it was in terms of the division of the rooms. We've refurbished it as respectfully as we could uh, and live in it in the same spirit, we hope, as the people who uh, who built it, who were Portuguese Jews, by the way, because Marston had a large population of Portuguese Jews in the 17th century. It was a combination of hospitality and of inhospitality. They lived in Marston because they weren't allowed to live in Utrecht, which is right upriver and now biking distance from here. Uh, but they were allowed to stay here. So a lot of Amsterdam Jews who did business in Utrecht lived in Marston. Obviously, when you speak about your home and this this town, you still have the same enthusiasm that you had for the beauty of the Netherlands that you saw more than 40 years ago. But the country, of course, has changed enormously. So has your native country, the United States, and relations between the two. Well, I haven't suffered any material disadvantage because of my taking Dutch citizenship and giving up my American citizenship. And because the countries have been so close to each other, really as, as close as any two countries in the world in terms of their the basic values and attitudes towards each other, they've always been open and I've been able to move back and forth completely at will. But I'm beginning to worry about a break between America, not so much the Netherlands, but, but Europe shaping up in the next uh, decades, uh, more because the population of America, which in my youth was very much oriented toward Europe, my teachers were almost all immigrants from Europe, my parents were, everyone around me. There were also, there was also a generation of young people who fought in the armed forces, uh, American armed forces in Europe uh, or later in Korea, who brought back knowledge of the outside world. And that attitude that Europe is important, that the outside world is, some, is part of our lives, 
is not true anymore for people that age in the United States. Only a small number of Americans have passports, a small number travel, and, and America is getting more more turned into itself and considering itself to be uh, the be-all and end-all of, of life on Earth. And, of course, this is an attitude which is unrealistic and cannot prevail. With all of its problems, I think Europe at least is heading in the right direction. It's heading in the direction and internally at the moment of more openness. Europe simply is more aware of its interdependence with, uh, the, with, with Asia and with America. And I must say that I have lived in a very, very fortunate time in fortunate places, and I count myself to be an extremely uh, fortunate individual myself with my family and having lived in peace in a prosperous part of the world, open, being able to travel wherever I want. And I wish this for my children and for humanity for all times to come. That's the, my prayer for the future. been listening to Flatlanders. Our guest today was American-born Dutchman Gary Schwartz, a leading art historian, writer, publisher, and expert on Rembrandt. This is Marijke van der Meer. Thank you for joining us. This presentation comes to you from Radio Netherlands Worldwide.